to I'm Loving Your Work. Today on the show, I'm really excited to have Jordan Harbinger. Jordan has been named by Forbes as one of the top 50 relationship builders in the world. He's had his work presented at companies such as Apple, Google, Twitter, the US military, Harvard Business School. He's even been kidnapped twice. When we recorded this interview at the end of last year, Jordan was the host of the Art of Charm podcast. He's now moved on to his own show, The Jordan Harbinger Show, but there's plenty in here that's still really interesting and really applicable. As you'll find out, Jordan was one of the real pioneers of podcasting, starting his podcast, The Art of Charm, in 2006. I'd like to take the time to thank Jordan for speaking to me, someone who's relatively unknown, as someone in his position. When we recorded this interview, The Art of Charm was getting millions of downloads a month, so it was huge for me to be able to speak to someone of Jordan's calibre. I hope you enjoy my chat with Jordan Harbinger. Jordan, you've lived an incredible life so far, but one of the first questions that we like to ask on the show is, when you're a kid, what did you want to be when you grow up? Uh, I wanted to be like Dan Rather, who's a famous newscaster in the United States. So, yeah, he's, I don't know how, I guess you know who he is too, so he's rather famous. I wanted to be like that. And my parents were probably really worried about that because of the safety concern with going into a war zone, which I thought all that stuff looked really exciting and really cool. And one of my first memories of of that is him basic, I don't know where he was, like Vietnam or something. And I was watching some clip of him from his career, you know, 20 years before I was born. And I was like, that looks so neat. You know, he's wearing boots and there's all these soldiers nearby and stuff. And my mom goes, oh, you don't want to do that. Those people really struggle to make a living. They don't make any money. And I was like, oh, and I was like, I don't care. And she's like, you'll care when you're older and you need to make money. And I was like, I guess you're probably right. And looking back, totally a lie. 100% not true at all. So, I mean, I guess she could have been talking about, you know, a writer for a local newspaper or something. That was not what I had in mind, obviously. I wanted to be like Dan Rather. But I think she just was like, no way. That's so dangerous. Yeah. You're not doing that. So she just lied. Absolutely. So how old were you at this stage? Were you able to sort of, I suppose, fully conceptualize what it would be like to go into a war zone? Of course not. I was probably like eight. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So so do you know what it was? Was it sort of just the, oh, I suppose, the excitement of, uh, or the adrenaline of being in that scenario that, that drew you to it? Yeah, probably that. But I, I didn't want to be in the army. So there was obviously something that I liked about, really about being in that situation that was not actually being in combat or anything like that. So I, I was old enough to know that I didn't want to do that, which is kind of strange, right? You'd think like, oh, you just want to be a soldier, you want to be a firefighter. I really was interested in the newscaster thing, the, yeah. the reporting thing. Yeah, it's 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 quite a sort of, I suppose, oh, even an almost niche interest for someone of that age, really. And and so did did the sort of I suppose the oh, the broadcasting and and I suppose journalism sort of idea did that sort of carry on right through? Um, it did up until I was well, no, I mean when I was younger in ele- elementary school and stuff like that, I did middle school maybe, but then when I got to high school, I didn't really know college, I didn't really know. Then I went to law school because I didn't know what else I wanted to do, and. It became more of an interesting. Uh, it, it, I basically had forgotten all about that particular thing. You know, I had completely yeah. not paid any attention to that type of thing. 
after Absolutely. after that point. So one of the things I've heard that you, heard that you say, which I find really interesting, is as someone who who went to law school and and did quite well at law school as well, uh, mm. you were someone who spent a bit of time sort of skipping school. I, I think you know you, you said that you were the the kind of person who your folks had come home and find you playing video games in your underwear sort of thing. So how yeah. how did you go from uh from, from that person who was skipping school to someone who you've obviously got to be fairly engaged in study and that sort of thing to do quite well at law school? Yeah, I started skipping school when I was younger because I had all this social anxiety and I thought, oh, everyone's looking at me. I'm not cool. People are going to make fun of me. I don't know what I thought. You know, I was just kind of a mess as a kid in that way. But I was still a good student. And then when I got older and I got more confident in high school, a little bit more confident in college. And then after college, I was much, much better. And I went to law school because I thought, okay, I don't really have anything else to do. But I was still a pretty good student. I just didn't have any sense of purpose. And then when I got to law school, I realized even before that, people were saying, this is super competitive. You know, you got to be really careful. If you're used to being the smartest kid in class, you're not going to be the smartest kid in class. It's really a hyper competitive sort of marketplace for students. You got to be really careful. And I was thinking, I'm well, I'm not the smartest kid in my class. You know, I work harder than everyone else. Um, because I need to, because other people are smarter than me. So I am worried about it and I'm just going to outwork everyone. And that's what I did. I just outworked everyone because what happened in law school was a lot of the people there were really smart and there were a lot of hard workers, but most of those people were also used to being the smartest person around. So their idea of really hard work was still pretty hard work, but it wasn't a a lot of the people who were used to just coasting because they were really brilliant. They got screwed because it didn't matter. Everybody was smart. Everything was graded on a curve. Everything was hyper competitive. And so these folks who had been used to cruising, even if they decided to step up their work ethic, they had to compete with guys like me who had spent all of undergrad outworking everyone, all of high school outworking everyone. So it became a big deal. Um, and they had eight, they were eight years behind the eight ball. You know, I already had good study habits and good systems and good follow up and good organization. And a lot of these smart kids came into it thinking, I can figure anything out in real time. And some of them did okay, but most of them didn't. Was that ever a conflict for you as someone who obviously sort of sort of quite intelligent, but uh, it doesn't sound like sort of going to law school was something that I suppose created with a, you know, burning desire from a young age sort of thing. So was was that tough to, I suppose, be going down and committing yourself to a path that, that might not have been your sort of greatest passion from way back? Yeah, I... Totally was checked out other than I worked really hard, but I was more more or less checked out. I didn't really care about anything other than not failing. So I wanted results because I knew I was there and I was paying for it. But I wasn't really thinking, okay, this is going to decide my amazing career. I thought I don't even necessarily want to be a lawyer. So, you know, this is just kind of not that big of a deal. And I I remember also um, there was this interview job interview thing where you they all these companies and firms came to this hotel and they would buy a room at the hotel and you would have to sign up through the career services office to get interviewed by these firms and I didn't sign up for those at all um and I showed up on the day of cuz my friends were like are you crazy you didn't even sign up for on campus interviews oh my god what are you going to do about getting a job you're so insane what are you thinking so I showed up and I was like, man, I didn't sign up for anything. This is a huge problem. I don't have my game face on. I didn't prep for any of these. And I remember showing up and I was just like, I didn't know exactly what to do. 
So I started talking to a bunch of my friends and I was like, dude, I didn't sign up for anything. I feel like I'm wasting my time. But, you know, if you hear of any no shows where somebody who signed up for an interview doesn't go to that interview, text me. And my friends are like, sure. All right. You know, I'll why not? You're crazy. But who knows? <laughs> so then one of my other friends who is my old, 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 old friend from middle school, he had or high school. He ended up going to undergrad and to law school with me. And he's like, oh, you know who's here? My old college roommate. You should go say hi. And I was like, all right. So I went over to that guy and I was like, hey, man. And he goes, hey, Jordan, what's going on? He goes, look, give me your resume. And I was like, oh, I don't know anything about this law firm. And he's like, I don't care. Just give me your resume. And he goes, just stay here. Don't go anywhere. So I gave him my resume and it was the lunch hour. And I was like, I'm going to go eat some food. He goes, dude, no, 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 stay here. And he goes to the partner who is there interviewing, the senior associate partner, whatever. And he goes, hey, uh, I know you're eating, but do you want to interview someone? And the guy's like, yeah, sure. Because the more interviews they can get in, the higher chance there's going to be a hire. And I think they were probably paid for, they were probably paid for doing a good job. They were there to get as many hires as they could for the firm. So he's like, if you don't mind me eating while we do the interview, let's just do the interview right now. So I was like, all right, awesome. I'll do that. So I sat down and he goes, uh, hey, uh, so yeah, uh, what do you, why do you want to do the law thing? And I was like, well, to be honest, I don't know a lot about your firm because I didn't sign up for this interview, but I know Jeremy and he decided to hook me up with this and I'm really grateful, but I'm not going to lie. I wasn't able to prepare for this because I just walked in. And he's like, oh, yeah, I don't care. I don't expect you to be prepared for something you didn't even know you were going to do until uh, five minutes ago. And he's like, so tell me, you know, do, are you willing to work in New York? And I was like, oh, absolutely. And he goes, all right. Um, all right. What kind of law do you want to do? And I'm like, I honestly don't know. I'm up for a lot. You know, my grades show that I can sort of perform in any particular niche. But I'm looking for something corporate. I don't really want to do litigation. Those are the only two things I know. And he was like, great, cool. And then he started talking about random stuff. And he goes, anyway, I'm going to finish this sandwich, but thanks, man. I appreciate your time. And then I was like, okay. So I left, and Jeremy was like, good job. I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> he didn't ask me anything substantive. He basically like ended the interview after 15 minutes so he could finish eating his sandwich and check his BlackBerry. And he's like, no, that's how all of these go. And you did just as well as anyone, and I think he liked you. And I was like, uh, yeah, you don't have to lie to me, right? So I left, and on my way out to the parking lot, I got a phone call from their New York office that was like, hi, our managing partner, Kevin, who was doing the interview, he liked you. He'd like to schedule a time for you to fly out to New York. And I was like, who is this? And they're like, this is such and such a law firm. I was like, no, 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 but really, thinking that Jeremy, <laughs> my friend, had just sort of called his girlfriend and been like, tell him, tell him we're going to fly him out to New York. What a tool. And she's like, no, no, no. And I was like, are you serious? I just walked out of there. She's like, yeah, we want to make sure that we get first dibs on qualified candidates and get you on the schedule immediately. And I was like, uh, okay, I can fly out whenever. And they're like, how about this weekend? So I was like, sure. Uh, it's going to be an expensive flight. She's like, yeah, we're not worried about that. Just book it and we will reimburse you. And I was, I was like, really? You're just going to pay for that? And she goes, yeah. So I bought flight tickets. They arranged a sick Manhattan hotel. And then I showed up and they had a check for me for like this $800 Michigan to New York City flight. And I just thought, what on earth is going on here? I show up unprepared. I'm like the Forrest Gump of law jobs. And the truth is, looking back on it with 2020 hindsight, it wasn't really that. I had prepared in my own way. I'd worked really hard in all my classes. I'd done really well. So I was a qualified candidate by any measure. He, The people interviewing didn't give a crap 
that I didn't sign up for that interview. They were probably wondering why they weren't my first choice because we had – I even said I didn't sign up for any, so he kind of laughed at that <laughs> and was like, I like your style. But my friend who worked there had vouched for me, put my resume in the pile. I did fine on the preliminary interview. That was really the whole thing. And so – I showed the interviewer that I had a network of people that would vouch for me that meant a lot and good grades. And that meant a lot more than, oh, I signed up on a spreadsheet a month ago, yeah. which doesn't mean squat. You Abs- know, absolutely. And I feel that that really, really speaks to, I suppose, one of the, the central themes of the art of charm. I think I've heard you say at times, you know, life's a numbers game. You know, you've, you've got to put yourself in as many situations where, you know, you might come across that opportunity. And um, it really sounds like that's, I suppose, been something that, that you've been able to do for a long time in your life. Yeah, I, a lot of it has to do with positioning and a lot of it has to do with sort of like I hate th- this word, but hack the system type of thing. So when a lot of people went to on-campus interviews and they spent hours thinking about who do I interview with first, who do I, how do I prepare, what can I say that's impressive, blah, 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 I showed up more or less unprepared, but not really, right? I'd done the important stuff to prepare. So you could have spent 10 hours thinking about which interviews you were going to do, but if you didn't spend uh, 200 hours studying for your exams like I probably did, it didn't matter. So they didn't really care. I accidentally did a lot of the right things. And it wasn't just luck. I used to think, wow, I'm so lucky. And sure, there's an element of luck in everything. And nobody wants to admit they were lucky when they can admit they were skillful or claim that they were skillful. But I I still think that I thought I was luckier than I really was. Because yes, there was some luck that my uh, other comrades, college roommate, you know, was the guy there. But they send people who went to school here back so that they can recruit their friends. So they did that deliberately. I happened to find out he was there by accident, but I would have run into him no matter what anyway because he was in a tiny little area, right, most likely. The fact that he took my resume I thought was really lucky and that, wow, I'm l- lucky this guy likes me. No, the firm pays him if they get a qualified recruit and that person gets hired. I think he gets like a Rolex and five grand, right? It's a law firm. So he, he was running around trying to get everybody he knew to give a qualified resume and put it in the pile and get them interviewed. So it was all incentivized on their end. I just thought, wow, look at me stumbling into this amazing stuff. I'm so lucky. It actually was set up that way on purpose by the firm and by the people that worked there. I just happened to dodge the university's recruiting process, which was designed to make it quote unquote fair for everyone. So you have to sign up and you can only go to interviews you signed up for. I just said, I'm gonna show up to the no-shows. Those were fair game. So if somebody didn't show up for an interview, there was no sign up. There was no wait list. It was just who's standing near the door. And I just happened to be running around the entire time trying to stand near the door. And so around this time, I, I, I heard your, uh, your your Google talk, which actually I, I will recommend that people go along and, and onto YouTube and, and look up Jordan's Google talk because uh, it's particularly applicable to, to this podcast and I think, and, uh, and there's a great story about how I suppose you, you made the transition from uh, from, from that tradi- real traditional career path in you know Manhattan, New York sort of thing to, to you know, now, now podcasting and especially back then, you were a real sort of... I suppose one of the pioneers of podcasting at that stage. So what was it that was there sort of one thing that compelled you to make the move from that sort of traditional uh, career path to, to, I suppose, really make the leap? Uh, Like, I I don't think iPhones were out when your sort of podcast started. So, um, yeah, what sort of compelled you to to make that decision? Um, You know, I, oh, why did I leave law, essentially? 
I suppose just what was it that I suppose made uh, compelled you to to make such a big decision in a in a different area to where other people had gone before? Like I imagine there there wouldn't have been I suppose many mentors in podcasting that had had you know years of experience under their belt at that stage oh, yeah. that could sort of you know let you know the viability of it and that sort of thing. So um, yeah, I suppose when when you were in you know a, a very financially stable relatively position as opposed to sort of making the making the leap uh just into podcasting was it say like was was vi- financial viability ever a real issue for you or, or yeah what, what was it that that compelled you to make that decision well essentially what happened was i'd gotten well when i was working for the law firm the financial system had essentially taken a huge dive and that became problematic. And so I was like, oh, maybe I should look for another job. And everybody was panicking, looking for other jobs. They were letting a lot of people go. It was a big problem. And I thought, I kept looking for other jobs. And that's when I realized I don't really want to be a lawyer. And I never kind of did. So I was thinking, why am I going to bust my ass looking for another job mm. in this niche when honestly, what I could do is just start or continue with the business that I had going. I'd already started the podcast while I was in law school. I kept it going through the law firm's days. I was on Sirius XM satellite radio for a while, which is like a satellite, basically nationwide North American radio station that's beamed down from satellites in space. I'd taken the show there. And so I thought, why am I going to bust my butt trying to get another job that I really don't want and I have to work really hard when I could just work really hard doing what I like doing, and I might make less money, but who knows, I could ramp it up over time. Little did I know it was gonna take forever, right, to ramp it up over time, much longer than it would have if I just worked at a law firm and you know continued on that career path, but I don't regret it. Right now, I'd be a senior associate at some law firm. I'd probably be working 60 plus hours a week, and uh, yeah, or working for a company and making probably less than I make now, but for much bigger hours working for someone else. So it worked out. It just took a lot longer. And so it was the Pick Up podcast around this time that you were working on. Is that correct? Yeah, we were talking about meeting girls. I mean, this is, I was 25, so I was talking about meeting yeah. girls, dating, relationships and stuff like that, going out at night. I drank during the shows. We interviewed people who were relationship coaches, dating guys and stuff it was kind of silly bro stuff back then and it, it's of course evolved into one of the most popular shows in the world right now where we interview people who have very successful careers and are high performers so it's a completely different animal at this point but yeah that's what we started off as it was just a hobby you know it was a basement hobby and so how how did the art of charm come to be from the pickup podcast uh well i got so sick of that branding, but my business partners were not going to let me change the name. And there was a point at which I just said, fire me. I'm sick of having my name attached to something called the pickup podcast. This was supposed to be a hobby. Now it's a business. I've got to go out and do media. I've got to tell people what I do. You guys don't even have it on your Facebook profile. So we got in kind of a conflict about that. And eventually one day I just changed the name without their permission and they were upset and I said, cool, well, you guys can just fire me if you want and that did not happen, obviously. And so I changed it to The Art of Charm and pretty soon I'm going to be renaming it again because even The Art of Charm is still a hokey name in my opinion and it doesn't really suit what we're talking about on the show at all. So it's, it's gonna rebrand again. We've been around for 11 years, you know, things evolve after that. So do you remember, the, uh, was there ever a time when you realized sort of doing the pickup podcast that maybe this wasn't, 
uh, I suppose, as, as socially appropriate as it, as it used to have been? Or ha- have you had any sort of pushback at all by uh, people who think maybe, you know, there's, there's slight chauvinistic tendencies in the show or whatever? Yeah, I mean, there haven't been any chauvinistic tendencies on the show for probably 10 years, so... Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely heard stuff like that, but you know what was interesting? I heard about that from guys. We had a ton of female fans that were like, this is awesome. I love this. I really enjoy this. And it was only guys that were like, I don't like this. It's somehow offensive to women. And I'd be like, how? And they're like, well... Yeah, something about objectification. I was just like, look, we have tons of women listening to this. If you can't point it out, what are you actually trying to show here? So what what people liked about it was it was all about becoming a better version of yourself, which is yeah. probably so that you can find somebody that you actually deserve instead of just knowing how do I get girls into bed? It's like, no, <laughs> the reason you're not getting women you like is because you're a schlep. You don't work on yourself. You have terrible hygiene or you're not you don't have a purpose in your career. You're not ambitious. There were all these pieces of advice, none of which had to do with manipulating the opposite sex. So women loved it. It was guys who were upset about it because I think in a way it fought their own self-image, which is that they should just be able to do whatever they want. and Women have to like them. And if they don't, they're just, you know, bitchy somehow. And I still hold to that. I still think that if we don't have what we want, there's a chance we don't deserve it. And if it's a relationship that we don't have that we want, there's the possibility, not the guarantee because there are always exceptions. There's the possibility, especially when I talk to guys that that we don't deserve it. We just think we do. So we have a sense of entitlement. So, I, I, I mean, I see a lot of guys that say, like, I don't want to date that girl. You know, she's not X, Y, Z. And I'm thinking, have you looked in the mirror at your life? You know, oh, you want a, a wealthy, hot, smart girl who's really outgoing, but you sit at home playing video games, you're overweight, and you don't know what you want to do when you grow up, even though you're 35. Yeah. Why do you think somebody like that would date you? And so it's about taking a cold, hard look in the mirror and then getting cold, real strategies to change and improve who you are. And I don't, I know there's a lot of people that look, think that's BS, you know, you shouldn't have to change yourself. Sorry, scoreboard reality check. Yes, you do. You have to be improving. Otherwise, you do not deserve somebody who is. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 that's one of the things I really like about the show is that it does talk about these sort of things. And, and you know, often it can talk about it in, in terms of, you know, girls and boys and sort of things. But, you know, obviously, it, it's super educational and that sort of thing. But one of the things that I, I wonder is, uh, you've, you've interviewed some incredible people, you know, just to sort of, uh, run, run, run down a little bit of a list here, you know, Russell Brand, uh, Roger Stone, who's been one of Donald Trump's advisors recently, uh, Admiral William McRaven, Gary Kasparov, the uh, world, ch- former world chess champion, Tony Hawk, people like this. How do you, I suppose, dictate the direction of your podcast in terms of balancing the the angle that you've chosen and and wanting it to be, I suppose, edifying, but then also balancing that with with wanting to entertain people as well. Um, yeah, you know, it's a really tricky balance. It took that took a long time. I have to figure out what's going to be entertaining for people and what they want to hear. But more importantly, I have to figure out what is going to bring value to the audience because a lot of people, people don't listen to me because I'm a comedian. People don't listen to me because I'm an attorney. I have to blend these two things together, right? But I have to do it in a way that teaches people something. Otherwise, the show is just the same rambly BS that everybody's putting in iTunes, which is, oh, I have an interview with this person and you know, I'm just going to have them come on and talk for a while. Okay, what makes you different? Absolutely nothing. Right. So I have to research the heck out of the topic, spend 10 plus hours 
prepping the guests uh, and making sure that I understand uh, what they're going to bring and teach the audience. Every episode of The Art of Charm has concrete takeaways for the audience. So if you can't teach my audience something that they can apply and use to become better uh, over essentially over the next immediate period after they stop listening to the show, then you're not a fit for the show. I don't want to hear about how great you are. The audience wants to hear how how they can become great as well by listening to your advice. So if you don't have advice, but you just want to talk about how you climb Mount Everest, I'm over it. Next. Yeah. And, so, and so it becomes very tricky because I have to pick somebody who can teach, and most people cannot. Most people don't want to. They cannot. They want to talk about their accomplishments, and sometimes that's inspiring, but inspiration is cheap. What's really important is something that people can apply. I don't want to hear about how you made it through depression unless you can teach other people how to do something similar. Most people cannot. So when I interview somebody like Shaquille O'Neal, I don't want to hear about how many championships he's won. I'm not interested, nor is the audience. If they were, they'd be listening to him on Sports Center or something. right? So what he taught us was how he makes decisions because he's famous and everyone wants to take advantage of him, Shaquille O'Neal. So how does he make decisions? Well, he had a bunch of concrete advice about how he seeks out the advice of other people that are not him, that are not going to be invested in a negative way, disincentivized to help him. They're going to be people who he can trust. How does he decide who to trust? We had a long conversation about that. Same with Tony Hawk. I talked to him about branding and how he keeps – people close to him who are going to be a good influence because people who have a lot of money and are famous, you know, they have a lot of people around them that are just waiting to, to pounce or take advantage. So I like to ask those questions because people who are listening to the show think, Oh my gosh, you know, this is happening in my own life. I might not be a famous skater or a famous basketball player or on the discovery channel, but I've got something that can relate to that. Same with Russell Brand. He talked a lot about addiction, how it ruined and dominated his life and dominated his relationships and the difficulties that it caused and how he got over it. Very interesting conversation. I don't want to hear from him just about how he does it and why he's so great because he's famous. Nobody cares about that. They can get that anywhere. So that's what I have to do. And that's a challenge. And I think that's what makes the show unique. I don't have, I don't have uh, some kind of hilarious delivery that people really like uh necessarily i mean people might argue with that but what what <laughs> i do is do, <laughs> yeah yeah what i do is i i do all the preparation in advance you know i do the preparation in advance and i out prep everyone so it looks like college it looks like law school i out prep everyone and when i out prepare everyone i can outshine everyone when it comes to game time you know i'm i'm doing the podcast equivalent of making free throws constantly because I don't have a choice, really. You know, I don't have any kind of choice on the matter. I have to make sure that I am pr more prepared than anyone else. Absolutely. And is there an interview that, that you could sort of uh, say is your most interesting that you've had so far? No. No, yeah. it'd be like picking a kid if I did that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so, not really. I remember you saying uh, that, that Russell Brand that you mentioned there and, and Jay Moore as well were the, sort of the two people that you probably wanted on the show more than anyone else. So as you mentioned there, talking about obviously like Ru Russell's had a quite a public uh, journey and, uh, and he's someone who is very educational with his journey and that sort of thing. So was, was it their sort of particular journeys and what they could offer the show that made you want to interview them or was it just that you were sort of big fans? of what they've done i think well jay moore was a fan of art of charm so he he sort of reached out to me which is great 
And for most people, I think for most guests that we have, really, really, I, I do a mixture of looking at something and I'm interested in them and trying to figure out what it is and then going from there. Some people pitch me and I'm always and frankly surprised about it. And then I will figure out some way to get them on the show. If they pitch me, then it's easier, obviously. But yeah, it's sort of a mixture, really. You know, it 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 really does depend. Some people pitch me, and I'm very interested in them already, and I'm surprised to hear from them. And sometimes people will be elusive and take forever to get on the show, and then finally we do and manage to make it happen. Yeah. And that kind of thing is always. That that kind of thing is always interesting for me. It seems like sometimes I'll try really hard to get somebody who's really just not you would think would be easy. This is not somebody who's who's sort of special, you know, other than I read their book and they'll be impossible to get on the show because they're so damn disorganized and they can't get their stuff together. They're too busy. And then I'll I'll think, oh, man, I can never get so and so on the show. I can never get this person on. They're too famous. And then. Uh, a week later, you know, that was the same thing with Russell Brand. I pitched him for years, nothing. And then uh, eventually I got him on the show because a week after I'd literally given up, maybe two weeks, I'd flat out given up. I was just so over it. There, I felt there was no way it was ever going to happen. I was sick of trying and falling on deaf ears. Nobody had answered me. Somebody reached out and said, hey, would you consider having Russell Brand on your show I really think he'd be a good fit and I'm a big fan and I, you know, I'm working with him. I'm handling his campaign. And I thought, yeah, of course. And I said, how come you didn't answer any of my email? And he goes, what are you talking about? And I said, <laughs> okay, got it. You know, he, whoever had been getting my email was just nobody. They were just no, some lame who couldn't bother, be bothered to respond, mm. uh, who did probably didn't even work for Russell or, you know, represented him on one thing and then claimed to be his PR person for the next five years yeah. that happens a lot yeah. in pr and in press yeah you'll you'll reach out to somebody and then when you finally get them they've never heard of the person you're pitching <laughs> it's all they're all over the website and you find out oh this person represented them once for some conference and they're they're claiming that that's their client you know it's 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 such a shell game hollywood especially is so bullshit ridden that it's it makes it hard and also easier in some ways once you get to the top because it is about who you know because eventually you have to go oh my god does anybody know this person and then finally i gotta reach out to you know jay moore and say do you know this person and he goes yeah hold on let me text him and that that does in one second 10 seconds what 10 years of me emailing their so their agent and their press person and all this other bs could not do uh, and a lot of the comedians i've gotten on the show man i've talked to their agent back and forth they stop responding they come back three months later blah 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 and then i just tweet at the actual person and i go your agent's giving me a runaround do you want to come on my show i'm getting sick of asking and they're like yeah cool i love your show i listen to it all the time when do we want to do it and i'm thinking oh my god you know come on already <laughs> so it just takes a while you know and and that makes it both easier and harder because it's great when you're at the top but it makes it so much harder to get there absolutely and and do you have any advice for anyone who, you know, might might be in a traditional career path at the moment, but thinking about taking the plunge and uh, and really going out there and doing something that's more passion based? Do you have any advice for anyone like that? Uh, it's hard to say because I'm not a believer in following your passion. I think most people follow their passion straight into their mother's basement. Yeah. The reason the reason that that's popular advice is because most people who are successful have no clue how they got there. So they say things like, follow your passion, follow your dreams. It's terrible advice. And you'll hear it from people like 
smart people like Mark Cuban will say something like follow your dreams. But really, that has nothing to do with it. Yeah, maybe he followed his dreams, but he also responded to the market. He did research. He hustled. He got opportunities. He was clever about it. He made connections. He networked. But none of that is sexy enough to come across in a commencement speech at Harvard or, you know, University of Michigan. So they say things like follow your passion and people go, yay, I'm going to do what I like to do for a living. And it's what people want to hear, but has nothing to do with what's true. Absolutely. I suppose one of the things that we talk about on the show is don't be do in the sense of, you know, I was someone growing up uh, where, where I knew exactly what I wanted to do and just, I suppose, thought that things would fall into place a little bit. But that meant that I was less, I suppose, uh, committed to really making sure that that was going to happen because I was just focused on the passion side of things. Whereas, as you say, you know, when someone, you know, if your passion's to become an astronaut, there's so much sort of, I suppose, groundwork and, and fundamental base stuff that isn't, you know, that isn't sexy and that you don't hear about. And that is, yeah, I, I really do agree with that, is that uh, we can get sucked in, uh, I suppose, to the outcome when talking about passion because if you're passionate about something, obviously you want to be spending your time there, but we can't just all be spending, on, uh, spending all our time on stuff that we're passionate about all the time. Yeah, we can't. It, and it's really unpopular advice. Really, really unpopular advice. And it's uh, it's really something that you cannot. It, people hate this advice. They hate or they hate me not liking this advice. They don't. They want to hear follow your passion, follow your dreams. No, it's not true. It's not a good idea. Generally, almost exclusively. And the people that think that they want to do that, I would say, do you even really know what your dream is? Because most of the time when I talk to people who are like, no, I want to do this thing online. I want to be – I like doing the influencer thing and speaking. Do you like that or do you just like the attention or do you like the idea of it? Do you have any idea what it really entails? Usually the answer is no. Yeah. <laughs> Usually the answer is no. They're, they're like, oh, I love the idea of being on Instagram and getting a lot of likes and then being famous on YouTube. Okay, cool. That's like 0.1% of these people's life. Most of their life is analyzing their analytics on YouTube and wrangling their team and managing shoots and buying props and editing and managing editors and setting up lights. Absolutely. You know, but oh, but you don't you don't see that. You just watch the video and you're like, I want to be that person. Well, congratulations. You've just been marketed to by that person. That's all that means. <laughs> Obviously, there's this whole thing about sort of following your passion and, and that that's not sort of as viable to just completely 100 percent go for that. But how do you, I suppose, realize whether you're in something that you might not be enjoying it at the time, but it is going to deliver you to the outcome that you want to be delivered to, or if you're just sort of in a, in a dead-end field and you're not really enjoying it at all? How, how do you, I suppose, discern the difference uh, when, when you are not enjoying something, whether it is, I suppose, leading you towards the right end game? You don't know. You can only go day by day. So with The Art of Charm and the show, I just started really enjoying doing the show, and I was like, this is something I really like. But that happened years and years and years into doing it. Before that, I was really into running the business stuff and the back end, and the show was an afterthought. And I got more serious about it the more I enjoyed it. And so that that sort of evolved into my sense of purpose or my calling or my passion or whatever you want to call it. But I had been before that I had the law job. I'd been running the business angle of things. I floated around doing a bunch of different stuff inside the art of charm. And I just kept working at it and working at it. And it really became something that I enjoyed. But if you're working at something 
and you know it's if, it, if it's a job, you're never sure if you're going to enjoy it or not. And if you work on your own business, you're never really going to be sure if this is something for you. So that's why whenever people go, oh, I want to quit my job and go all in on you know, my podcast or my YouTube or my online business, I'm always like, why? So you can tell people that you're not a waiter anymore and that you run your own business. It's just ego. Do this stuff at the same time. You should never quit your job for your business until the only thing stopping your business from growing is your amount of time. And you need to have that written down. Not like, well, if I quit my job, I'll have more time to be on social media and go to conferences. It's like, no, that's not delivering value. If you're a writer and you're making money from writing and the only thing stopping you from making more money writing is you have because you have so many writing gigs, they're just in a backlog, but you have this pesky day job, then sure, limit your time during doing the day job. However, most people aren't like that. They're thinking, well, okay, I'm not really making full-time wages, but if I go all in, I've got two months of runway with savings if I live frugally, so I can just work on my business and then hopefully get things up to speed. That's a terrible idea. And people do that based on ego because they're not thinking, gee, this might take five years. They're thinking, oh, it might take like five weeks. They don't have a plan. They don't have an idea of how they're going to get there. So they just want to quit their job soon because they're sick of dealing with their job. Most people don't really want a business. They just don't want a job. And I think that's the problem with a lot of these like entrepreneur circles recently is they really don't want the, the business. They just don't want to do their job anymore. And those are two very different things. Yeah, absolutely. And and just to finish up, I'll I'll actually steal one of your questions here. But uh, is there anything else that I haven't asked you that you'd like to put out there to the audience? No, I would just say that, look, if you like learning and you really like applying what you've learned and putting things into action instead of just sort of the circle jerk, like listen to a bunch of advice and feel like that feel like you're doing work because you heard somebody else talk about that i would say if you really like doing and learning from real people i would love if people listen to the podcast you don't have to buy anything it's free the art of charm podcast uh, in itunes or wherever you listen to shows and i would love to have some of your listeners as my listeners and i think people will will have a shift in their thinking in a way that is very positive by listening to the show because I as you can tell I don't tell people what they want to hear I tell them the the truth as I see it yeah absolutely and and I'd actually just like to echo that as well is that I know for my own personal situation your podcast has given me so much in terms of uh, the tools that give you the kind of confidence to be able to sort of carry out what you want to do so yeah thank you thank you very much man I appreciate it